At this point in the service, we will dismiss the primary and ozone children to go to their classes. And as they leave, the rest of us can grab our Bibles and turn to James chapter 5, please. When David said that about our one-year anniversary here, I swear, I think it was Andrew behind me, said, that's all? I feel like like he's been here for ten years already. It's dragging on. Might not have been Andrew. Might have been in my head. I don't know. That's a good thing, sure. We'll go with that. James chapter 5. We're excited for this uh, time of year. Obviously, the fall is kind of new beginnings. It's fresh, right? And there's there's kind of a sense that things are starting over and recycling and coming up new with the kids going back to school and... And uh, likewise, we've mentioned several times already that coming, starting next week, we're going to start a new series uh, in church here where we're looking at the attributes of God. And obviously, we can't exhaust that. That would be an infinite topic for an infinite being. But we are going to select eight or nine different attributes of the Almighty and examine those together, with really the application just being awe. We want to stand in awe of our God. We want to understand what it is, what it means that He is holy. That he is glorious, that he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing. And all of these attributes, what does that truly mean? And what does that mean for our lives going forward on the practical day-to-day? How should that affect my life, that he's holy? What, what, what difference should that make? And really, in many ways, this is a great compliment to going through a letter like we've been doing this summer. We've seen that James is very, very practical. He's talking to Jewish Christians in the early church saying, you need to start doing this. You need to stop doing that. Be mindful of this. And he's very, very practical. And it's not that the attributes of God are not practical. They are large, aren't they? And so there's this contrast that we're going to enjoy this fall. And and as Jim has said and Andrew as well, we're very much looking forward to this series. What better topic for the church than to jump into looking at who God is and what difference that makes for our lives. So we're looking forward to that starting next week as we begin with the glory of God next week. So please join us. But for this morning, we are finishing up our time in the book of James. We've been working through this verse by verse this summer. And this morning, we come to James chapter 5, verse 13 through 20. Now, if you were a TV watcher in the 80s or 90s, or if you were even alive then, you may remember a show that was very popular at that time called Cheers. Anyone remember that show? Some of you, some of you not. Uh, Cheers was a program that centered around a pub in Boston where these regulars, these, uh, these citizens would come and they would live life together, they would drink, they would socialize, and the show followed their lives through this central theme. For those of you who are familiar with the so- show, and some of you who aren't, you may recognize the theme song. It says this. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries, it sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see that troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. That is a very familiar and relatable sentiment, isn't it? We all know, by experience, that life can be wearisome. It's not so much, although it is at times, that acute happening that puts a burden on our shoulders, but really, 
for a lot of us, it's the cumulative effect of stresses and anxieties building up over time, right? It just makes life tiring at times. And it comes from all directions. There's, there's emotional stress, spiritual attacks, there's health concerns, finances, relationship, and it just seems to build up and come at us from all angles. In fact, I'd be willing to wager that some of you who even came in here this morning feel that you are dragging a big bag of worries with you as you've walked into this building. Life can be very worrisome. It can be very burdensome. Wouldn't you like to get away? Take a break from all your worries? And the author of the song that opened up that show in the 80s and 90s proposed a solution, didn't they? Find a place where everybody knows your name. Everybody is glad you've come and you share your troubles with all of them. In other words, find a place where people know you, they love you, and they can carry your burdens along with you. I'll be honest. I have heard worse descriptions of what the church is supposed to be than that. As we read the New Testament, we find out that clearly the church is supposed to be much more than that, but I think we're safe to say that it's not supposed to be less. The church is supposed to be a place where we can come, all of us can come, and it's a place where we can be known, truly known, and and loved, and welcomed, and where we can come and, and lay our burdens across many shoulders. This is the biblical picture of the church, at least at the very ground level. There's so much more, but it can't be less. And as we come to the end of this letter in the New Testament, of James's letter, a letter that has been, as I said, very, very practical, he ends in such a, a, a very appropriate way. He's been talking to the church and saying, here's how you need to endure trials. Here's how you need to function as a church. And he comes down to this final section. He says, the church cannot be that type of a place. The type of a place where people can come and be loved and be known and have their burdens shared without these two essential habits. And he leaves them with these two things. He says, if you have any hope of being a church like that, these two practices have to be in place. And we at Oak Ridge would say, we want to be that type of a church. Right? We want to strive to be the type of church where anyone can come in and feel welcomed and known and ministered to. So how do we get there? Well, James is saying you better have these two things in place. And so we're going to learn from him this morning. Be reminded of these two practices together. If you found your way there, please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Out of reverence for God's word. James chapter 5, verse 13 through to verse 20. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, 
Someone should bring that person back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is God's word. Please be seated. Again, God wants us to be the type of a church where its members are known and loved and helped, where the gospel is proclaimed, where the full counsel of God is taught, where grief can be processed and victories celebrated. As we read the New Testament, we catch a family vibe from what is being described as the New Testament church. That's what we're striving for. And according to James, to be that type of a church, there are two habits that have to be in place that we want to recognize this morning. The first habit that he mentions in verses 13 through 18 is that the church must be in prayer. And this has come up several times in James's letter already. But this is a specific type of prayer I think he's mentioning as the letter closes. It's a specific type that he has in mind. And to get to it, I want to ask a few questions of the text together and and let the text answer these questions. The first question I want to ask is, when are these people being told to pray? Okay, When are they being told to pray? And the opening verse and a half, it tells us, pray in times of trouble, pray when you're happy, pray when you're sick. Okay, very, three very specific circumstances that I will argue James is trying to communicate, pray always. He's using these extreme examples to encapsulate every circumstance of life. This is a common literary technique of biblical authors. They, they use extreme examples to encapsulate everything. I was thinking about that children's song you may be familiar with, Skidamarinky-dinky-dink. Remember that one? Skidamarinky-dinky-dink, Skidamarinky-do, I love you. And the line goes, I love you in the morning and in the afternoon. I love you in the evening and underneath the moon. What does that mean? Does that mean not at lunch, though? Not at the beach. I don't love you there. No, the author is saying, I love you always, right? I love you in every circumstance. I love you completely. That's what James is doing here as well. He's saying, when should you pray? Pray when you're sick. Pray when you're hurting. Pray when you're in trouble. pray Pray all the time, he's saying. In every circumstance, be in prayer. Now, the second question is related. It's how then should they pray? We've seen when, always, but how should they be praying? And in a word, James answers that question. He says, together. Pray together. In fact, you notice through this section the amount of, of plural pronouns being used all the way through here. Anyone among you, call the elders of the church to each other, to each other. There's this sense of a community here. So when should we pray? Always, at all times. How should we pray? Together, as a body of Christ, as a church, as a family. And we see this as they're instructed in verse 14 to call the elders to pray when they're ill. James writes, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So James is taking a very specific example from that list he gave, that short list, the sickness. And he's taking it and he's pulling it down and he's saying, when that happens, call the church around you. Call the people that you know and that you love and that you worship with. Call them to come and pray for you. More specifically, call for the leaders of that church to come and pray. And that phrase that he adds in here, pray over them. Pray over them. It kind of implies physical presence. 
It implies that we're actually there praying for one another. Now, I don't want to negate the, the, the beautiful thing it is to pray for one another in absence. It's a great thing. We have a prayer chain at this church. We, we pray for one another when we can't see them eyeball to eyeball. That's one of the many, many benefits of having a Holy Spirit that unites us, prompts us to prayer, having a high priest that intercedes for us. We don't have to be with one another to pray for one another. We should be praying for one another. That's great. But what I see says, come and pray over them, I think he means be in presence, breathing the same air incarnationally with that person, praying for them. And if that phrase, pray over them, doesn't convince you, then certainly the next phrase, this, this anointing with oil, does imply presence, doesn't it? It's pretty hard to anoint with oil via text message or email, or, or, but from a distance. It's implying there, you're together. Call the elders, call the church to come around you and pray and anoint you with oil. Okay, what's the deal with the oil? You know, we got we to tackle this. What is he talking about with oil here? Well, you may know this, but in the first century, oil was used for medicinal and, and hygienic purposes. Kind of like we would use ointments or, or lotion. In fact, there's a great example in the New Testament in one of the most famous parables Jesus ever told. The prodigal son. You all know this parable quite well. There's a man walking. He gets jumped by robbers, beaten to an inch of his life, and left there. Some people come by. They see him. They go to the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, an unlikely helper, comes along, sees the man wounded, and cares for him. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, it says that this man, this good Samaritan, takes out oil and wine and pours it on the man's wounds. So here we see this good Samaritan using oil to clean the wounds, treat the wounds, and maybe alleviate pain. But he's dealing with the man's physical symptoms. And so when we go back to James chapter 5, I take it that he's saying, if you're sick, call the elders, call the church around you to care for your needs, both spiritual and physical. Get them to come and get them to pray over you, praying uh, for your forgiveness, praying for your healing, but also bring the oil. You know, meet their physical needs as well. We see that there's no contradiction in James as far as spiritual health and medicine. He's saying, do whatever you can. Meet the needs of the people in your church. But again, the point here is that they are to pursue prayer together as a church. Don't suffer in isolation. He's saying, you sick? Don't suffer in isolation. Call the church. Call the elders. Get them to come into your midst and pray over you. This is emphasized again in in verse 16, when they're told to not only call the elders, but they're uh, told to call one another as well. It says in verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So James is telling these first century believers that they must be in the habit of praying. If they're going to become the type of church that God wants them to be, they have to be praying. When should they be praying? Always, in every circumstance. How should they be praying? Together, as a congregation, as a church family. Now, the final question I want to ask is why? Why are they being instructed to pray? And the simple answer is that because it's powerful. Because it's effective. Because it changes things. And we believe that as a church, but he says it clearly in verse 15 and following. James writes, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. They're effective. There's healing and restoration and forgiveness available through prayer. Now, does that mean that God will grant, yes, every healing that we ever ask for? Well, he doesn't say that there. He says, come together as a church, pray for the people that are sick, and God can heal, and God will forgive. Those are possibilities, and we're called to pray as a church. As one theologian has written, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. We're pushing back the darkness in this world when we call upon God to help. I think James would add, when the, when the people of God together, collectively clasp their hands in prayer, that's an uprising on steroids. Like it's strong, we're pushing back against the darkness of this world in prayer. So when should they pray? Constantly. How should they pray? Together. And why should they pray? Because it is powerful, it is effective, it changes things. And James says so explicitly in the second half of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful, and it is effective. That's why we pray. That's why we pray. You say, I'm not, I'm not righteous. But remember, as New Testament believers, we have a righteous one standing next to the Father, interceding on our behalf, a perfectly righteous one, who hears our prayers. The prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. And then he gives an example in verses 17 and 18, the example of Elijah. He says, Elijah is just a guy. There's nothing special about Elijah. He was just a man. And yet he prayed, and what happened? The clouds shut up. And then he prayed again, and they poured forth rain, illustrating that prayers are effective and powerful. And the early church was, was well aware of this. In the book of Acts, which, as many of you know, is the kind of the chronicles of the, the genesis of this, of the church, the church is coming together. The Lord has ascended away from them, leaving the apostles to spread the news around the earth and, and, and the ecclesia that the church is going forth. And in one of the early statements of what they were doing, in Acts 2, verse 42, it says this, They, the church, devoted themselves, committed themselves to four things. And you know what they are. To the apostles' teaching, the doctrine of those left by Christ, to fellowship together, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then you get all the way through Acts, and you see this habit of the church to gather for prayer, gather for prayer, gather for prayer. It kind of seems like it's important to them. Like it's effective, like it's powerful to come together and pray together. An interesting account in Acts chapter 12, we see Peter arrested. Peter's arrested for preaching the gospel. He's put in prison. And it says in verse 5 that the church gathers to pray for Peter. They come together in a house to pray for Peter, one of their leaders who's in persecution. And then an angel comes and busts him out of prison and he's standing in the middle of the road and he says, you know what should I do? I'm going to go visit my brothers and sisters praying for me. I know they're praying for me in this house over here. I'm going to go see them. So we see this all the way through Acts as well. The church assumed that prayer is a pillar of becoming the type of church that God wants them to be. We want to be that type of church so we know that prayer is crucial. Without prayer, we won't be the type of a church that God wants us to be. When we pray together. And so we've seen here that, that James is giving these instructions, right? To this first century church. But I want to turn it on us now. And ask, what are some implications for us at Oak Ridge? If that's what James is saying to these first century scattered Jewish Christians, what's he saying to us? What does this mean for us here at Oak Ridge? And practically, this week, what should we be doing to live out this type of a mandate? To be committed to praying with urgency together. 
And I want to give three things. Andrew mentioned uh, school assignments. Well, we got assignments today. I mean, it's the, it's the season, right? I have three things that we should be doing, and they have short assignments with them, okay? And these are implications for us here at Oak Ridge. The first thing that I would recommend is that we need to take prayer requests. They're pretty simple, right? But if we are a church family, and we take what James says seriously, that we should be praying for one another in all circumstances, then we should be asking one another, is there something that I can be praying for for you, for your family? I mean, it's so simple, right? Give me something specific. You know, I, I can pray for you generally, and I will, but I, I want to know something specific. If you want to give me the nitty-gritty details, just know what can I be praying for you. So an assignment associated with that. This week, ask one person. Ask one person this week, what can I pray for you? Something specific. Give it to me. I will lift it to the Lord in prayer. I want to pray for you, my brother, my sister. If you really want to stretch yourself, someone maybe that you don't normally ask, someone that you don't normally talk to, ask them. Hey, I know we haven't met a whole lot of times. We've had a few conversations, but is there something I could be praying for this week for you? That's the first thing. Very simple. The second one isn't much more complicated. You need to get prayed for. If we're willing to pray for other people, we should be willing to ask others to pray for us. This is a problem I, I see in, in North American individualistic society. We, we think that we're imposing on people to, to, to get them to, to pray for us. Right? I, don't, I don't want to be in a position. You know, I don't want to complain about what's going on in my life. Listen, it is a privilege and a, a pleasure to pray for one another. That's, how it, that's the attitude it should be as a church. You're asking me to lift up your need to the Almighty God on your behalf? I... I would, be, I would love to do that. That needs to be our attitude. We're not imposing on someone to ask them to pray for us. And so this week, assignment number two, give someone a prayer request. Hey, it could be the same person. You can cheat, right? You can get really efficient here. It can be the same person. You know, Can I pray for you? And while I'm doing that, can you pray for me, for this specifically? Again, the details don't have to get obscene. Just, I am struggling with this. I need your help with this. I'm asking, we have this coming up this week. Will you help me by praying for me? Easy. Kind of. The third one is to pray with others. Is to pray with others. And this, this is where it gets uncomfortable. I saw some shifting in the seats here. Praying with other people. It's one thing to say, can you pray for me? It's another thing to say, I can pray for you. What can I pray for? It's another thing to say, let's pray. Let's bow together and pray. I know that that's uncomfortable, but I am hoping, I've been praying this week, that everyone in this church has at least one person here that they feel somewhat comfortable with bowing in prayer together. Again, if you want to be really efficient, this could all be one person, all these three things. But if you're a keener, it could be three different people. Uh, To ask someone, let's bow together and pray. And for some of you, you this may be, the application, the implications for Oak Ridge may be Elders, can you come and pray for me? Call the elders. That's not an imposition. We would love to come, and we'll pack the oil. No, we might. We would love to come and pray for people. So this might be the case, but this, these are little obvious steps that we can t- take as a church to start getting in the habit of being a church that prays often and together in the power of God for his glory. We want to be a church that is praying with and for one another. So this is the first habit that, that James puts in place. He says, you want to be the type of church 
that loves one another, that knows one another, that carries one another's burdens, that is a church that ultimately glorifies God, you've got to be praying. The second habit is found in the last two verses of our text this morning, in the last two verses of the letter as a whole, and is that the church must be in pursuit. Not only must the church be in prayer, but they must be in pursuit. And, and this habit is certainly more challenging today than the previous one. It's one thing to say, can I pray for you? It's another thing to go after someone. Right? That, that, that is a lot more uncomfortable at times, but it is no less essential. And I think James would argue it actually grows out of the first one. If we're praying together and for one another and loving one another that way, we will ultimately pursue one another when we go astray. Verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back to the truth, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's how he ends the letter. Go after one another. Our culture has largely settled for a pathetic, dumbed-down version of love. They don't know what love is. To our culture today, love means that you accept me, that you affirm me, and that you celebrate me. That's what love means. You love me if you do these three things. If you accept me, that shows that you love me. But, but accepting is not enough. You've got to affirm me in everything that I am, everything that I feel, everything that I want. You have to say, not only I accept you, but I affirm that. That is a good thing. That is you. And not only that, it doesn't stop there. You need to celebrate it. And if you don't do all of those things, you don't actually love me. You may have run across that in your life, talking with your family members, your friends. They confuse affirmation and celebration for love. And we as a church will say, that is not love. That is hatred. How much do you have to hate someone not to correct them when they're doing something that will harm them and the people around them? And that's the culture we live in. They don't know what love is. They don't know what community is. Well, we know. He's told us what love should look like. He's told us what community should look like. And when the church family, not ours, but our church family, when it treats one another the way that the culture wants to be treated, with that satanic love, and that's what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a, an imposter. When that seeps into the church and we start loving each other with that, that malicious indifference, we're not doing anyone any favors in the church. And we are actually sidestepping our divine mandate to pursue holiness in community for the glory of God. This place is to pursue holiness, to pursue Christ-likeness, and to cheer one another on toward that goal. And that includes rebuking sometimes. It doesn't have to be abrasive, but we've got to come alongside people and say, that's not the way. And I need to tell you that because I love you. Not in, not because, it's not as proof that I don't love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't say anything. I'd be indifferent, right? But because I love you, and because I'm convinced that what God promises here is life abundant, and it pleases the creator of the world, because I'm convinced of that, I want to encourage you to align yourself with this, and I want you to encourage me to align myself with this as well. 
James is telling this, this group of first century Jewish Christians that, that if one of the brothers, one of their brothers, one of their sisters strays from the truth, strays from the gospel, strays from what they know what is right, he said, go after them. Don't let them go. Don't let them go unchecked. Pursue them. And then he adds some motivation at the end. Not only is it because we love them so much, we want the best for them, we want the best for the church. Not only that, but if you bring them back into the truth, he says, and into godliness, back into the community of believers where their burdens can be shared and where their sins can be dealt with, if you do that, he says, you'll be saving them from death and covering a multitude of sins. Sometimes we forget that the Bible says sin can lead to physical death and illness. We seem to separate those two things. There's my physical health and my spiritual health. And none of the two, they'll never meet, right? But when we come to the table of the Lord, like Andrew was bringing us to in 1 Corinthians, he says, when you come in an unworthy manner, when you come sinfully to the table, this is why some of you are sick and some have even fallen asleep. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, they were sinning against the Lord, gone. I think it's in 1 John, the apostle, he writes, uh, there is a sin that does not lead to death. Well, what does that mean? There's a sin that leads to death, too. Where God can take us out of this world. And so motivated by that, we see a brother or sister wandering from the truth out in the wilderness where there's no protection, no light. We go after them. Because there's a lot at stake. We go after them as if their life depended on it. And we do so with, as Paul says in Galatians, we do so with sensitivity, with compassion, we do so with love, but we do so with urgency. Go after them. We pursue them. The motivation is high. And, and brothers and sisters, this is true love. This is true community. This is what a church looks like. This is what separates a biblical, Christ-honoring church from another church. Is a church that not only proclaims the gospel unabashedly, without confusion, without ambiguity, and stands on biblical principle, but they also go after one another. They take their sanctification just as seriously as their justification. We're saved, praise the Lord, and we sing about it. But we're also not going to stay on milk. We're moving to meat. And we're going to help one another get there. So we go after them. So what are some implications for Oak Ridge? We've seen that these are the instructions, again, from James to this, this first century church. What does this mean for us? Well, I think clearly we, we have to be a, and strive to be a pursuing church. And again, I would be willing to wager that, that almost everyone in here can name one or two people in their life they're not doing so well in their relationship with the Lord. At least it seems like. That have strayed a little bit. That have stopped attending. They've forsaken the gathering of believers as some are in the habit of doing. They, they, they seem to go cold. They have, they're not singing as they once did. There's, there's something. You're close enough to them to know that something is off. I bet you everyone in here can name one or two people. And the assignment for this week is to go after them, is to pursue them, is it not? And that doesn't mean you knock on the door and say, hey, where you been? It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we're harsh with them. It means out of love we say, I, I've just noticed, maybe I'm wrong. But I, I love you enough, I have to ask the question, can I help with anything? Can I pray for something for you? Are you struggling with something? And will this mean that there might be some tough conversations this week? Yeah, there might be. Some awkward conversations? Sure. Will they ask or say things that you won't know how to respond to? Maybe. Maybe. But it also could be that they're like, you love me enough to come after me? Thank you. We don't know what it will be like. 
but we do know what we're commanded to do. Isn't that the, that's the marching orders of the church? Leave the results up to the Lord. Just be faithful with what I call you to do. And as a church, he's saying, we need to be a people of prayer, and we need to be a people of pursuit. We need to go after people. If we are to be the type of place where people can bring their burdens, their heavy hearts, their sins, where they can bring things to deal with, and we, where they can be known and loved and aided in their spiritual walk, if we're going to be that type of a place, a family, then we have to have these two pillars in place, these habits in motion. We have to be a people that are praying together and a people that are willing to put it all on the line to pursue one another when we stray. I'll be honest, if I ever stray, I would hope that y'all come after me. I would hope, I, I pray for that. If you ever see uh, a concerning habit, conversations have to be had. I would consider that love. I hope that you would as well. I know that God would be pleased with it. Let's commit ourselves to these two things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do want to please you. We recognize that we are a local expression of the body of Christ. We are your son's bride. And we want to act accordingly. Father, we want to take this very seriously. Not ourselves so seriously, but the work that you've put before us. We want to present one another pure and blameless as much as we can, depending on your spirit, Father. And we want to be a place where people can come and be known, truly known, and be loved, and have all their burdens shared across many shoulders, empathetically, and covered in prayer. But Father, we need your help to accomplish these things. But we know that, Father, if we are faithful and just pursue your work in your power, you will bless that. You said that you will. And Father, as we think about pursuing brothers and sisters in need, brothers and sisters who have strayed, may we keep in mind, Father, that you are the ultimate pursuer. That when your people strayed, when they rebelled, when they again and again and again and again turned away from you into idols, you went after them. You pursued them, pursued them. And then you sent your son. And for all of us as New Testament believers, even though we were in complete rebellion, even though, well, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You pursued us with that. And we thank you so much for that truth. We want as a church to reflect what you have been to us. You pursued us. We want to pursue another in love and in nothing but love. Father, help us to do that. And help us through that to reflect the type of community that only you can build. This true body of Christ that cares for each other. A type of a community that the world around us longs for, but has no concept of. Build us into that, we pray, for your glory and for the good of our community, and for us as well. In Jesus' name, amen.